All right, open up the Word of God to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We are going to go through 11 verses, so we're really going to be motoring today. All right, so let's read. But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all, uh, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly to you. But if anyone has caused grief, it has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent not to be too severe. This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such be one who is swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For, to, for this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Let's pray over our spiritual meal. Father, I thank you so much for the word of God that is blessed. We're going to open and receive it by faith and be blessed by it. Again, Holy Spirit, we ask you to be the spiritual teacher and that you would anoint the eyes, ears, and heart of each person listening and open them by the gift of your grace and cause them to see, hear, and understand what you're saying. Father, I thank you for causing them to hear your voice and walk away with what they need. And only you can do this miracle and believe it's happening right now in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. All right, let's go to the first verse and start unpacking this. It says, but I determined this within myself that I would not come to you again to you in sorrow. And so this book is a book of restoration. The first book that he wrote, 1 Corinthians, was a corrective letter. And so there was pretty heavy things that were going on in the church that Paul had to deal with. And so once uh, that was dealt with, some repented. Some were not very happy with Paul. Matter of fact, some of them started pointing their finger back at him and started trying to find fault with him in his ministry. One of the things that they tried to find fault with him was, Paul, you promised you would come twice to us. You said that you would come from Ephesus to us and then up north to, to the Philippians and to the Thessalonians and then come back down, visit us a second time, and then go to Jerusalem. But you only visited us once, Paul. And Paul said, yeah, that's true. You only visited once, and be glad I didn't come, a twi come again because it was a very unpleasant visit. And so Paul visited him one time. It was a very painful visit. It was a sorrowful visit both for him and the Corinthians. And Paul says, you know what? For this time, I didn't come to you because we need a break. We need to take some time off. And he says, but I term, determined this within myself that I would not come to you again in sorrow. Paul says, I just determined this within myself. He didn't say he heard from the Holy Spirit. It said he just determined within him. Why did he determine within him? Because it's important as a minister, there's four tanks as a minister you need to make sure stay filled. The first one's your spiritual tank. That's where you need to stay filled with the Word of God, praying in the Holy Spirit, Stay be being filled. Why would you need to be being filled with the Holy Spirit? Because you leak. Tell someone you leak. And you need to be being filled. And so your spiritual tank is tank number one. 
The second tank that needs to keep full is your mental tank. Sometimes you're mentally just focused on things for so long, you become mentally weary, or weary in your mind. And so as a minister, you need to take time off and, and refocus your mindset. The third tank is your physical tank. And so you've filled that pretty well the last few days. Well, what does it mean to keep your physical tank well? That means to sleep. Tell someone sleep might be a good thing. Every once in a while. And I'm a night sleeper. I don't know about you. But why do I say that? Because some people in this room stay up all night and they're up till the wee hours doing whatever. And so your body needs rest. Well, the, the fourth tank is your emotional tank. And so you can get filled with worry. You can get filled with anxiety, just your problems and your emotional tank. And so Paul basically saying, I need a break from you because... That I, because there's just so much sorrow that we went through, and so I'm going to make sure that I'm going to keep my, my emotional tank from overdrawing. You know Jesus did that. Jesus was, uh, you know who Jesus' cousin was? John the Baptist. They were, they were just like, that. They, I mean, they had potato salad at the family picnic every year. I mean, they grew up to what, matter of fact, when, when Jesus came to be baptized by John, he knew him so well he said, I need to be baptized by you, dude. Now, he didn't quite know he was the Messiah until the, he said, the dove, who, the, who the dove this is. And so the Holy Spirit descends, then you'll know. But he knew his character. And so, but when he was beheaded, do you know John the Baptist was the first Baptist to lose the, his head over dancing? <laughs> do I need to explain that? Hopefully not. Okay. But when he heard that he was killed... He said, I need to take away. And it says in Matthew 14, 13, when he heard that, he separated himself and went into a quiet place. Now, they followed him there, and he ministered to them. But we just need to draw away. And, and so if our emotional tank's too full or, or, or getting drained, we need to take time to refill that. And so he says, you know what? Uh, uh, in the first verse, he says here, but I determined this within myself that I would not come to you in sorrow. And so verse 2 says, For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he that makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? Paul says, you know what? You need me, but I need you. And it's like, you know what? If both of us are sorry, both of us are at a low point, we can't minister to one another. And Paul knew something in the ministry is that he needed encouragement just as much as the people need encouragement. And so in the ministry, you're not above the people, you're among the people. And so I hopefully encourage you on Sundays, but you know what? You encourage me. There's not a Sunday I don't walk by, walk out, and I go into my car, and I'm so filled up with, with encouragement because of you guys encouraging me. You'd say, you know what? Try next heart. You did better this time than you did last time. <laughs> and I'm sure you're going to get better, Pat. And I feel so much better, and I walk away with hope. So Paul was like that. Look in Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 12. Paul realized that there was a mutuality or a mutual uh, giving and taking among the congregation. Look at Romans 1, look at verse 12. Paul says, that is that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Paul was humble enough to say, you know what, I need you and I need your faith. And so the Roman shield, the shield of faith was a Roman shield and the Roman shield had hooks on either side is that hook, shield hooked to shield, shield hooked to shield, we're stronger together. Faith hooked, your, you hook your faith to my faith, I hook your, 
my faith to you, and we are encouraged and strengthened together. And so that's what that's about. Verse 3, Paul says, And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. Paul said, I even wrote to you and told you I was not going to come a second time. And so he had come to them, had a painful visit, left, and wrote 1 Corinthians. And so he had a painful visit there. There's a lot going on wrong in this church. And then he wrote 1 Corinthians. And in this letter, he, wrote, he had to deal with strife starting out. Then he dealt with strife. Then he dealt with those that were suing each other in court, just dragging other Christians to court over small business matters instead of dealing with it among themselves. Then there were those in sexual immorality. And Paul's going to bring out there, in last letter, there was a man living, let me say cohabitating carnally, with his stepmother. This is in church, so that's the best way I can say it. He was cohabitating carnally with his stepmother. And so Paul, and so instead of them being upset by that, they were all boasting about it. Look at, we're in such a, we're, we're a grace church. You know, where, where, where sin abounds, grace doth much more abound. And we have the worst sin in the block. We have the worst sin around. So look how much grace we have. And Paul's saying, that is not something you ought to be boasting about. And so they were boasting about that. Then he gets in to uh, the sexual immorality there. And then he had to deal, then he got into the spiritual gifts that they were all hopping up trying to impress everybody. But they spoke in tongues. It's like little babies in playpens with their toys hitting each other. And so they were all getting up and trying to outdo the other with prophecies and stuff like that. And then there were some getting tipsy at the communion table. Yeah, they got in there and got into the communion wine. And we're getting drunk. You're thinking, well, I came from a messed up church, but not that one. Man. And then there were some with false doctrine that didn't even believe in a physical resurrection. Well, if there's no resurrection, then Jesus didn't raise from the dead. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, you're still in your sins. There's no hope for you. And so he had a lot to straighten up. And so some repented, but some did not. And they got angry at being corrected, and they started picking against the messenger, and they started picking Paul. And Paul has to defend himself in this letter. And so look in 1 Corinthians 16, 7. Paul will tell them in 1 Corinthians he's not going to come a second time. 1 Corinthians 16, 7. He says, For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay with a while with you later if the Lord permits. And so he tells them, he says, I wrote to you previously telling you I wasn't going to come the second time. It was just because of our situation right now that we need a break. And so let's go down to verse 4. We're going to hop along pretty fast, and then we're going to slow down. Verse 4 says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you. That's 1 Corinthians. It says, With affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears. There, you know, when they read 1 Corinthians, that was not a great Sunday when 1 Corinthians was read in church. Not a very, you know, fun, fun day at church. And so, but you know what? That guy that got up there and read the parchment, there was some tear stains on that parchment. Sometimes it may be a little hard to read the ink because tears had fallen upon it. Paul said, I cried over this letter. I was, that's how much you mean to me. He says, with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know how much I love you abundantly. And Paul says, you know what, I, I didn't write you because I just want to get on to you. I wrote you because I love you. You know, if you love someone, you'll tell them the truth in love. And if you see someone going over a cliff, you're going to stop them, even if they get mad at you. You know, are you willing for someone to get mad at you to tell them the truth because you love them? 
If you're not, don't come into the ministry. And so it says with many tears, then and it says that you may know the love which I abundantly love towards you. This should be the heart of every pastor and Christian minister. Why are you in the ministry? Is it because you love people? Because if it's not, there's some other reason why you're in ministry, and it's self-motivated. And so you're going to abuse people when it's self-motivated. And so who was this that wrote? Paul was not originally Paul. What was his name? Saul of Tarsus. And he was a, always such a grace-oriented individual, wasn't he? No, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a re very religious person who hated Gentiles. I mean, if a Gentile was on fire, he wouldn't go out of the way to put them out because they hated Gentiles. But here, grace has so impacted this man's heart, he's weeping over them, writing a Gentile church, saying, I love you. Grace can impact you. How do you know grace is impacting you? How's your love life? How's your love life with people? And so, again, verse 5, let's move on. It says, but if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. Paul's saying, really, the problem, this guy, and he's going to bring out this guy that had committed sex, sexual sins with his stepmother. He says, really, it didn't really hurt me. It was hurting you guys. And so this, this level of sin in a congregation is going to hurt you. It's leaven that leavens the whole lump. It's something that, it's a cancer that's going to spread, and it had spread, and so it was hurting you more than it was hurting me. I just want to let you know that. And so Paul says, I'm writing this because it was hurting you more than it was hurting me. Verse 6 goes on. Now, this is where we're going to stop and we're going to focus on this because I feel like we need to. Verse 6 says, this punishment, say punishment. This punishment which was inflicted by God. Oh, I'm sorry, clueless translation. This punishment was, which was inflicted by the majority of you is sufficient for such a man. And Paul's going to bring out correction. Correction. And so we're going to talk about the correction of the Lord in our lives today and, and really how it's, this level came through people. We're going to talk about how does God correct his children. First of all, raise your hand if you believe God does correct his children. Some of you, that's good. We can get there. You know, if you, raise your hand if, you have, if you're a parent. Do you correct your children? Why? Because they bug you? They're on your last nerve? Well, we shouldn't do that just because they're on the last. We should do that because we love them. He, you know, actually, Proverbs says, if you withhold the rod from a child, you hate them. And so if you love your child, you're going to discipline your child because the child will act like a hellion. And so, again, you want this child to be able to be, to be thankful and to be a citizen, to be able to, so anyway. And so every once in a while with a child that you need to apply some pressure to the gluteus maximus. Amen. And there's a direct line from the gluteus maximus to the cerebellum. Hallelujah. It's a direct line. It just, it lights it up and gets it. And so, and so if, if we love our children and correct them, how much more does God loves us? But he's going to correct you. We're going to find out how does God correct his children. We're going to find that out. But let's go talk about what happened with this guy. And, and uh, this refers to this gentleman. So let's just go back and find out what happened with him. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 1. We're going to talk about this gentleman that was dealt with in the first chapter. In, second cha in the second book, he's repented. So what do you do with it now that he's repented? Look at 1 Corinthians 5. Look at verse 1. 
it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as not even named among the Gentiles. It said the sin that was going on in your church didn't even go on. The world didn't do it. Do you know something about Christians? Christians, only Christians can sin in a way that the world won't even do it. You know, some Christians can sin so bad Satan takes notes. That's good. How to mess up one's life. Well, that's a good one. And so, you know what? Sometimes Christians can sin worse than an unbeliever can sin. Well, don't look at me that way because the Bible says that if you don't work and you choose not to work, you're worse than an infidel has denied the faith. What's worse than a sinner sinning? A Christian. That's a Christian, what I call a Christian cluck. Who says they had a divine word from God. They were not to do any work. They're to sit and pray in tongues all day. And while their family goes without food or clothing and all the needs, and they sit around with the divine revelation, they don't have to work. That's worse than an infidel. Unbelievers don't do that. Unbelievers take care of their family. And so, again, it says this kind of sin wasn't even named among the Gentiles. It says that a man has his father's wife. Look at verse 2. And you're puffed up. It means you're proud about it. He says, you're puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in the body but present in the spirit, have already judged him who has done this deed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ when you're gathered together along with my spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Say flesh. flesh. It didn't say spirit, it said flesh. This man's living, giving himself over to the flesh. And so, again, the only thing he's, he's in the flesh, and the only thing that he'll listen to is the flesh. And when his flesh gets touched, he'll pay attention. That's like the gluteus maximus hitting the cerebrum up, up here. It says, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Verse 13 says, But those who are on the outside, God judges, therefore put away from yourselves the evil person. Actually, the Greek says, Put your... Put away from yourselves the evil. And so again, let's talk about correction because the Lord does correct his children, but there's three main phases of correction in a Christian's life. Let's look at the first one. Well, actually, let's look in Hebrews chapter 12. Well, pastor, I don't believe in God correcting his children. Well, okay, then let's look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. This is the New Testament. I believe Paul wrote this book. Hebrews chapter 12, look at verse 5. And it says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. Speaks to you as what? Sons. sons. This is Christians. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as what? Sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you were without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate and not sons. So if God doesn't correct you, that means you're not saved. Verse 9 says, Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Well, some of us. <laughs> Hallelujah. So shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? 
For they indeed a few days chastened us, and it seemed best to them. But he, but God for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are being trained by it. And so we're going to find out that God chastens or corrects his children. Look at the word chasten. Well, pastor, what's that? Is that cancer? Or is that, is it, I'm going to have accidents? Or No, no, no. I want you to look at that word chastening. Look at it. The Greek word translated chastening is the Greek word paideia. Paideia. P-A-I-D-E-I-A. If you're taking notes, paideia. This word comes from the root word paideon, which means a child. What does this Greek word mean? Child training. So plug that in. My son, do not despise the child training of the Lord, for whom the Lord he chastens. This is the verb form, paiduo. Paiduo. And so this means child training. How does God child train his child? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Please turn to 2 Timothy 3. Look at verse 16. This is how God... Uh, uh, Corrects every one of his children. The primary way God corrects his children. Look in 2 Timothy 3.16. See, make sure that's popped up for you. There you go. It says, how much scripture? All. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Say profitable. What is it profitable for? For doctrine, that's teaching. For reproof, that's rebuke. For correction. For instruction, look at that word instruction. It's the Greek word paideia. Paideia. In righteousness, child training. How does God correct or train his child? Through his word. Through the word of God. That's the primary way God will bring correction to you. Have you ever experienced a corrective word from the word of God? And it's like you almost, almost wanted to have a spanking. Because it was like, oh, boy, that cut me right to the heart. But because it just revealed your life, and you're like, oh, i got to deal with that. You know what I'm talking about. Don't look at me so pious. In your own study time, you popped the Bible open, started reading, and all of a sudden a verse pops off at you, and you're like, oh, no, I don't want to focus on my issue. There's still people with issues today. There was a woman with an issue in the past. There's women with issues today, and there's men with issues today. We all have some issues from time to time. And the scripture points it out and says, you need to address that. And you're like, I'd rather not. And then you flip over to another one, look down, and there's the sister verse. In the entire Bible, you find the sister verse to the verse that was dealing with you. And you shut the Bible. I didn't see it. I hear nothing. I see nothing. And so you hop in your car and you're going to, well, I'm going to flip on Joyce Myers. And Joyce Myers is talking about it. You flip the channel, I'm going to get some Andrew. He's grace-oriented. <laughs> and he talks about it. I'm going to come to church. Pastor's talking about it. You know, when God's dealing with an issue in your life, it's almost any scriptures like it's on it. You're talking about the Antichrist. Oh, don't deal with my lion. <laughs> but the word of God is to correct us. Look at Titus chapter 2. Look at verse 11. Again, the word is how God corrects his child, where he wants to. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to how many men? 
all men teaching us. Look at that word teaching. It's the Greek word paiduo. Child training. How does God do it? By teaching. By the word. So God wants to bring that. and He wants to bring us to repentance. Repentance is still a Bible word. It's a New Testament word. Repentance literally means from the Greek metanoia in the Greek. Meta means to change and the other word is nous where we get the mind. It means to cha literally change the mind. Now, well, Pastor, I just thought repentance was snot and tears and everything else. Now, now repentance can have snot and tears, but it doesn't have to have snot and tears if you've changed your mind. And when you change your mind, you change your actions. You change the course you're going when you change the way you think. Let me say something to you. As Christians, you are to be a steward over your own repentance. How can I steward my own repentance? By being in the Word and allowing the Word to renew your mind, change the way you think. And you can, you can actually steward your own repentance. And so, but many aren't doing that. And so again, God wants to do that. Look at 2 Corinthians 7. This is the last verse I'm going to cover on here. Talking about how God corrects his major way, primary way of correcting his children is through his word. 2 Corinthians 7, look at verse 8. 2 Corinthians 7, look at verse 8. says, For even if I made you sorry with my letter. With my what? That's 1 Corinthians. And what is 1 Corinthians? It's scripture. It says, I made you sorry with a, a scripture, with the scriptures. And it says, I, I do not regret it. Although I did regret it, when I first wrote it, it's like, oh, am I doing the right thing? Man, this is going to be hard. I hate to see this. Oh, man. I, like when you're spanking your kids, like, I hate doing this. This hurts me more. And as a kid, you're like, yeah, right. <laughs> this does not hurt, you know, this hurt me more than it's hurting you. And you're like, then you become a parent. You're like, mm, yeah, this hurt me more than it's hurting you. And Paul says, it hurt to write this letter. And I, and I regret it. And I send it off. And like, oh, is this the right thing to do? But after you repented, he says, you know what? I'm glad I did it. Because it turned, you turned around and you repented. And you had godly sorrow that led to repentance, that led to life. And so it says, I, did not, I, I do not regret it now, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a little while. And so next of all, let's talk about what if you don't listen to the word? What if you shut up that Bible and say, I'm not going to read my word anymore. I'm not going to listen to Andrew anymore or and, or your or, uh Joyce Myers or anymore. I'm just going to shut it off. If I don't hear the word, I won't be responsible. Oh, well, you keep do doing stupid. Yeah, you, the next level hits. You're going to get chastened by your circumstances. Your circumstances will spank you. I want you to look in Galatians chapter 6. Look at verse 8. Well, I'm, I'm under grace, Pastor. No matter what I do, all my consequences just magically disappear. Uh, you're deceived. Your, your behavior has consequences, and God doesn't just wave a hand and make them go away. Now, if you ask for mercy, he'll give you mercy, he'll help you out of it. Raise your hand if you need mercy. Tell someone you may need more mercy than you know. <laughs> Look at Galatians 6, 8. This is when you're not listening to the word, you're not changing with the word, you're not repenting through the word. So what's going to happen? Your circumstances will start spanking you. Galatians 6, 8. For he who sows to his flesh will of God reap corruption. No. Oh, clueless translation, sorry. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh. 
wreak corruption. Corruption means things start breaking down. Your health breaks down. Your finances break down. Well, what's God doing? No, God's not doing it to you. He was trying to keep you from it by his word. And just put your faith back in the word of God and just fly right. But you're not listening to the word. You're going your own way. You become hard-hearted. And so now your circumstances start. And then if you continue in that, you can get to a place to where your sin starts infecting other people. You know, sin is, is a damaging. It's damage to any relationship, to a marriage, to children, to a church. And so if your sin starts affecting you, like this man sleeping openly and proudly with his stepmother, and, this was, and the other ones were actually affected. They were boasting in it. They were proud about this guy and started affecting the people in the congregation. It started spreading. And so it's causing you damage. It's causing you problems. you got to deal with it. And so then you, the third phase is excommunication. What's that mean? You're kicked out of church. You know what? If you find yourself kicked out of a church, you may say, you know what? What is wrong with me? I am outside in the cold, outside this church. I, got, I just got kicked out of a church. And it's because, guess what? You're the common denominator. And so, you know, you know we're a, a sweet church. You would have to really go to some length to be kicked out of River Rock Church. Praise God I haven't had to kick anybody out of River Rock Church. But if you do, you might ask yourself, I wonder why I've been kicked out and I'm out in the parking lot. <laughs> but sometimes you have a hard heart. If you get to this place, and well, let me say this to you. Well, pastor, how do you, because this is what's called being handed over to Satan. It's called excommunication outside of church. I'm going to talk about that, how, how that works. But if you're like, oh, I'm so scared I'm going to be handed over to Satan. <gasps> if you're worried, you're not there anywhere near it. You know the people that are, are needing to be excommunicated out of a church is their heart is so hard. They're what I call a knuckler. They're a knucklehead. You beat on their head with knuckle and it don't get through to them. And it's like tell someone don't be a knuckler. So if you're worried about, oh, I don't want that to happen to me, you're not close. Praise God. You're listening. You're here listening. And so let's look at 1 Timothy because uh, this guy in Corinthians were actually, was actually excommunicated out of the church. Well, that's not the first one that was done that. There was others that happened that happened too. In 1 Timothy, look at chapter 1, look at verse 20. It says, Of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Look at that word learn. It's the Greek word paiduo. Paiduo. Child train. What this brings out that they were excommunicated to bring some discipline to their life because they stopped listening to the word. They're not listening to their circumstances. And so now you're going to be excommunicated out of the church. Why was it such a big deal to get excommunicated in this day? Because there was only one church per city. There was one church in Corinth, one church in Ephesus, one church in Rome. The churches had not split off in denominations at this point. And so you, that was the place where you came and you had fellowship with one another. You prayed for one another. You had communion. You had the teaching of the Word of God, which, which brought you instruction and it brought rebuke and correction. And it helped you in the path of the right way. Well, you're no longer getting any of that. And so now you're separated all by yourself. Let me have a question. Was when a lion wants to get the gazelle, which gazelle does it get? And I know watching Neo, you know, National Geographic is a very, you know, it's a, it's a very emotional experience to see that lion get that gazelle. But which one does the lion go after? 
the weak one, but who's usually the weak one? Have been separated from the herd. And so, so let me tell you, being handed over to Satan definitely is included in excommunication. Now, if there's another spiritual dynamic in that, there may be, but really what it was is that you're being separated from the other body of Christ. And so let me say something to you. It's a lot harder today to bring church discipline because guess what? If you, if you excommunicate something out of the church, guess what they can do? They can go right down the street and hop into another one. And so again, uh, but there is a spiritual aspect, I believe, in handing someone over so that the flesh is starting to get touched so that they get into repentance. And so, but when you're handed over to Satan, doesn't mean you lose your salvation. I want you to see that 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. 1 Corinthians 5.5 5 says, Deliver such a one, this is the one sleeping with his stepmother, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit will be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Do you notice that? It's his flesh being touched, not his spirit. So he's still saved. Now also look in 1 Timothy 1.20. It says, Of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I deliver to Satan, that they may learn, paiduo, child train, they were still children. They were still children of God. And so, again, uh, this is the stages of correction. Look at verse 7. It says, So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps son, such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Let me go back to a thought I want to bring out. Is that it's horrible to have to be excommunicated out of a church to where you lose the fellowship of, of, the, of the saints and the teaching of the word. And, but you know what a lot of Christians have done? is they have self-excommunicated themselves. They weren't kicked out of church. They just stopped going. And they, they separated themselves from the Word of God and from the saints and from the prayers and from the times of fellowship and prayers for one and the strength that we bring to one another. There are so many today that aren't in church. Tell someone you're in church. Good news. But there are many Christians, multitudes of Christians that are out there not, well, I watch online. Well, you may be watching online, and that's a great deal. You know, so many people, they, they have a church that they watch, but then they want to listen to us because they, they like the teaching of the Word of God. That's great. And if you're on vacation, that's great. If you're sick, that's great. Don't come to church and spread your germs everywhere and cough uh, hallelujahs all over you, ever someone else. That's a great, but there's some people that's chosen. There's good churches. They just choose not to go well, I'm going to attend virtual church. You know, the Bible says in Hebrews 10, 25, it says, forsaking not the assembling of yourselves together. It didn't say forsake the being on the couch. It says forsake not the assembling. Why? Because it says even more when you see the day approaching. Why? We need each other, the protection we provide one another. Because it's not just receiving, it's giving and ministering and praying. Because when we end, oftentimes we end in prayer, and we're going to end today praying for one another, and we're going to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit to give the gifts of the Spirit out. And so, so that on the contrary, look at verse 7. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. And so let me say something to you. There's a ditch on either side of all truth. Let me say something to you. If there's not a ditch on either side of the stance you're, you're taking, you're in a ditch. Think on these things. And there's a ditch. There's a ditch here. What's the ditch? 
There's ditches on either side. There's a danger of having no sorrow over your sin at all. You have no compunction. It doesn't bother me at all when I sin. That's a danger. That's a ditch. But another ditch is having too much of it and being in condemnation. And so there's two ditches. Look at verse 8. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. What's that mean? He's repented. He came to the Lord. He admitted his wrong. He says, I've changed my mind. I've repented. I've put this back. I've, I've uh, separated from this sin. Please take me back. And some of them wouldn't let him back in church. And so it says, I urge you, therefore, reaffirm your love to him. Verse 9 says, for this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you're obedient in all things. What's Paul saying in this verse? He's saying, if, say, I wrote you to deal with this guy, to, to deal with the sin that's in your church. And if you wouldn't have dealt with that, I can't, there was nothing for me, there's no common ground for us to continue. If you weren't willing to deal with that right there and test your obedience in that, then, then we really have no grounds to be able to work together at all. And Paul says, you, you responded though. And says in the verse 10, says, Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. I thought, Pastor, I thought God has already forgiven us. Well, it's not talking vertically. I'm talking horizontally. You know, when we hurt other people, we need to ask them to forgive us. And we should say, I forgive you. That's horizontal. And so that's something God's already forgiven us, but we need to make it right on the horizontal plane when we've hurt somebody. Now whom you've forgiven anything, I forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I've forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Really, this was not a case of one person forgiving one other person. This was someone that had sinned in front of an entire congregation, had damaged an entire congregation, and this is communal forgiveness. Communal forgiveness is always uh, conditional upon repentance. This guy repented. He says, now accept him back, receive him back. He says, I also forgive. And look at verse 11. Why, do we, why should we forgive? Let me tell you something. There's a problem in the body of Christ. We love forgiveness as Christians. Raise your hand if you love forgiveness as a Christian. Oh, you love it, love it, love it. Love it when you've done wrong and God didn't hold it against you and you were simply receive the unmerited grace of God and the blessing of God. and We love it, but not so much with others. Right. Especially someone that's done something, you're like, well, that nasty. <laughs> but you once were a nasty. <laughs> and God's forgiven you. Ephesians 4.32, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted. See, if, if, you, if you don't receive forgiveness and you don't forgive, you're hard-hearted. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Well, pastor, if I forgive, then I'm basically saying it was okay what they did. No, no, no. What I'm saying was what was done to you was so bad it deserved death. You mean I can kill them? Really? You, <laughs> pastor, you tell, no, no, before you run off, before, hear the rest of the sermon. Don't kill that person, especially your spouse. 
what was done to you deserved death. And that punishment was paid in the person of Jesus. He died. It was that, it was that bad. He died. But he died for your sins that were that bad. Let me tell you something. There's a problem when we try to operate in grace and the gospel towards ourselves vertically. But then we put people on a performance towards other people. We try, to, we try to operate in the gospel. What's the gospel? The root, the foundation of the gospel is the forgiveness of sins by grace through Christ. That's the foundation of the gospel. So we want to operate in the gospel towards ourselves. But then we, try, we operate in the anti-gospel with others. And we become hard-hardened. Hard-hearted. And a hard heart can't receive good anymore. Um, there was a time when I found out that my car does not drive well with diesel. <laughs> that mixture don't work. It gums up your receptors. I don't know. Gums up something in there. Mm -hmm. And one time I had put diesel. I put diesel in that thing. I took off, and within 30 feet, I sputtered and stopped, and it wouldn't start again. Hundreds of dollars later, after having that stuff cleaned out of the entire engine, you know, when you're trying to operate in the gospel and grace to yourself, but operating in the anti-gospel with someone else, it's mixture. And the receptors of your heart doesn't work right. God's trying to give by grace, but you're not receiving. It's called hard-hearted. Lest Satan should take advantage of us. How, how do we keep Satan from taking anything, any ground in your life? Grace, the gospel, towards yourself and towards others. Now, Satan should take advantage or, or, or take room. Take, take, uh, this word take advantage means to have, uh, take more, to overreach, to make gain, to get the better of. Lest he take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. What is the device of the Lord, of, of Satan? To get us in the anti-gospel. Towards ourselves and towards others. I'm gonna, we're going to unveil, there's several different uh, schemes of the enemy, but I want to tell you his main scheme today. He has a three-part strategy for every Christian. He has a three-part strategy for you sitting in this room right now. And he's busy at it. And he's really good at it for a lot of Christians. He's already got them into the third phase. Three phases. This is what he wants. Romans chapter 8, look at verse 33. This is the first stage of his attack. His devices. Romans 8.33 Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who does that? Satan is the accuser of the... say the accuser of the lost people. He's the accuser of the brethren. That's his first step. He will, he will take something you've done and accuse you of it. You're guilty. Now, if you're wise, you're like, yep, I did it. If you did it, don't say I didn't do it. Now you're lying. It's doubled. Agree with your adversary on the way. But don't stop there. Yeah, I did it, but Jesus did something about it. 
Look at the verse. You can stop that that first step. You can stop it right with the gospel. It says, who shall bring a charge or accusation against God's elect? Now, so you can stop that. If he accuses you, you can stop it by saying, it's God who justifies. Just as if I'd never sinned because Jesus bled and died and covered that and paid for it, just as if I'd never done it. But wait, 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 wait. What about that sin they've done against you? That's where we have problems. You need to stop it with the gospel and say, no, Jesus died for that. But there's a difference between forgiveness and trust. They're not the same thing. Forgiveness is a gift you give somebody because it's been given to you. Trust is earned. Trust, trust, isn't, trust is where, okay, well, open myself up and you do it again to me. No, no, no. Trust is earned. Forgiveness is a gift. It's more for you. So you can stop this with the gospel. Don't try to have gospel for you and the anti-gospel for someone else. It's a mixture. Romans 8.34. Who is he who condemns? That's the second stage. He'll take accusation and then bring condemnation. You lied. Well, I'm sorry. Not actually. I should wash my finger. He knows. Pastor knows. No. He'll say you lied. So, so what's accusation? You did this wrong, but then condemnation is that's who you are. You're a liar. And because you're a liar, now you need punishment. You know, a lot of people that have chronic, ongoing, terminal illnesses, at the root of it is condemnation. Because now they're guilty of what they've been accused of. They're guilty, and they realize they need to be punished. And they tell every cell of their body they need to be punished. And they don't even realize that's what's happening. The enemy will bring in condemnation, but you can stop it with the gospel. Towards you, towards other people. How do you stop that second phase, that second prong of attack? It is Christ who died, and furthermore, he's risen, who's even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. I love this verse. Look at the words. Christ died. Furthermore, say furthermore, furthermore. is also, say also, also, risen, who is even, say even, even, at the right hand of God, who also, say also, Praise God. Furthermore, also, even, also, he died. What you did was so bad, he died for it. Then why are you holding yourself guilty for it? Actually, you're not going far enough. Well, I'll feel bad about my sin. You know, when I was young, and I was a young buck in the Lord, I do, I do, I'd commit a sin, and I would feel so bad, I'd lay in, in depression in my bed for a week or whatever, and finally like, well, I better just get up and try harder next time. And I'd get up and not fall again, and I'd be in depression. And God showed me really that my root of that depression wasn't the sin, it was right, self-righteousness. But you know what? I didn't go far enough. My sin deserved death, not feeling sorry for myself for a week. But I didn't have to kill myself. Jesus died for me. And take the gospel and receive forgiveness today for what you've done. Guilt will kill you. Why would you need to die? Jesus died. But what about that other person? 
that did that against you. Will you operate in the gospel towards them? Well, if you take the condemnation, he'll move right into the third phase, and this is right where he wants. He has a lot of Christians right here, and this is what he's after. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? God hasn't separated from you, but he wants to convince you that God has separated himself from you because you're condemned, and he's angry, and you've gone too far. And you feel like God's a million miles away and he doesn't love you anymore. He wants to get you there because if he can get you there, you're separated. You're separated. I won't be at church anymore with those righteous, holy people. I'm not like them. They got it all together. <laughs> and he gets them separated. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? No. And all these things we overcome through the blood of Jesus. So yes, you have received the gospel for you. Will you give the gospel? Will you give the gospel? And you keep your heart tender. Your heart works right. It receives right. It receives grace. Father, thank you. Bow your heads. Father, I thank you for your word. But Jesus, you died for us. You died a death we deserved. And you gave us grace and forgiveness without merit. We've received that gospel, but there's some in this room that needs to give the gospel. Because you're operating in the anti-gospel towards others. It's a mixture. You need the pure gospel, pure grace. For your heart to be soft and to receive grace. You say, Pastor, there's someone I need to release to the cross. What they did to me to the cross where Jesus paid the price. Doesn't mean I have to trust them. That's earned. But I'm going to release the debt. They don't owe me because that debt was paid. I'm going to release that unforgiveness today. I'm going to operate in the gospel towards others. And if that's you, I want you to raise your hand high. Thank you, Father, for those that have their hands raised. They're, going to re they're releasing what was done to them to the cross where it was paid. And they're freely forgiving. And they're operating in the gospel. And now their heart is tender to receive grace. We thank you for it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship God together.